The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studios in Las Vegas, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Toffey. Ronnie Cox is a superbly talented actor who also happens to be a singer, songwriter, and musician. He has been working in Hollywood for almost 50 years, portraying a diverse range of characters from good guys to bad. He, of course, made an immediate impact in his first film when he starred in Deliverance in 1972 with Burt Reynolds, John Voight, and Ned Beatty. We'll talk to him about that role, how he got there, and what he has done in the years since as I welcome Ronnie Cox to the program from his home in California. Welcome to the show, and as we're recording this, let me say happy birthday to you. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> How does one celebrate his birthday when we're sheltering in place? <laughs> very privately. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on your new album, Live at the Kitchen Sink. It's funny because that title, it, it's just the way that we're all living right now. It, it's kind of perfect, isn't it? it? Well, it is, but it's actually the name of the studio we recorded it at. It's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Well, I know that you're from there originally, from New Mexico. Yeah, I'm I'm from New Mexico originally, and and and, and the other guys in my band, Rad, had had, had known Jono uh, Monson, who runs that studio. It, it's it's kind of a famous studio in Santa Fe, and and I'll brag a little bit. I was I was inducted into the New Mexico Music Hall of Fame last November. Nice. And so while we were doing that. Tour, we stopped off at, at at the kitchen sink studios, and and with a small uh, audience, we recorded the the album live. And and I'm, I'm I I love live albums. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah there are some places that they could use a little help every now and then, but there's also something that's that sort of to use an overused word, uh, uh, organic about it, too. Right. And I've heard a lot of the things that you've done, the live stuff, your recordings, and you're just a great storyteller, I have to tell you. It's it's certainly one of the things that you do well, in addition to all the songs that you've recorded. Where did you find your guys that, that are now uh, in your band? Well, Rad and I have played together 12, 13 years now, but but he introduced me to Tom Ryan a, a couple of years ago, and 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 Tom actually mixed this and and, and did, a, I mean, we call him Panda, and and they <laughs> just the three of us really sort of do well together, and 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 I'm really delighted that they're. And by the way, just to go back to, but you know, I left the stories off of my kitchen sink album but if you go to my website i because a lot of people a lot of people like the stories and like to know the background of them so so if they if you or they uh, if you go to my website and where it's and, and uh, the first thing that comes up is live at the kitchen sink and he said it says read more uh, then you can listen to any of the stories you want to listen to i've listened to all of them actually i i, I did that a few days ago and and some of them are very touching, and some of them are actually very hysterical. <laughs> well, thanks. The, the stories are equally as important to me as... Because my show, in many ways, as I'm sure you realize, it, is kind of like a, 
a two-act play with with music, and and you know I love being able to use my acting chops as well as my as well as my music chops, and and it's it's more of a an organic whole for me. I think I read somewhere too that was it Clovis, New Mexico, that was sort of a hotbed of music recording back in the late fifties, early sixties. Yeah, I grew up in Portales, New Mexico, which is which is nineteen miles south of there. And and so when I was in high school in the 50s, Norman Petty Studios, which is where I was there when Buddy Holly cut Peggy Sue. Wow. I, I, I was there. were other uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmer, uh, Jimmy Bowen and Buddy Knox, uh, Charlie Phillips. There were all kinds of recording artists that were. So I was Norman Petty actually saw <laughs> I had a rock and roll band back in those days. Ron's Rockouts, <laughs> and, and and Norman Petty saw us at an exchange assembly in in Clovis, and hired us to sing backup on record. I, we sang backup when I was in high school. We sang backup for a, a a girl named Hope Griffith out of Lubbock, Texas, and so so I was cutting records when I was in high school, and I put myself through college. And so even though I was a theater major and always wanted to be an actor, I always wanted to be a musician as well. Well, and now getting back to Buddy Holly, did you actually get to witness the recording or, or talk to him after it was over? Yeah, I was around, but I can tell you the truth. I'll own up to something. I wasn't a big fan of Buddy Holly back in those days. No, no. <laughs> I, 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 mean, I mean, I've since become a huge fan of his, but at that time his music didn't there was a there was a black artist uh in Clovis named Freddie Williams and the keynotes and they were like my they were like my gods favorite players you were still focused on the acting in high school you had this band so how much of a thing was acting to you at that point were you doing uh, school plays oh absolutely i i knew from the moment i, I if you listen to the story of the John Houston story. I, I, I saw Treasure Sierra Madre when I was 13 and, and knew from that moment on that that's all I ever wanted to be was an, I, I mean, when I was a kid in high school, people would say, what are you going to be? And I, and I would say, I'm going to be an actor. And, you know, everybody laughed to a kid from New Mexico, but, but that's, all I ever wanted to be was an actor and a, a musician. Yeah, don't you think they laughed at every kid who said they wanted to be an actor? <laughs> Certainly from <laughs> New Mexico. <laughs> so, is this the place you you were uh, you met your future wife, or your high school sweethearts at that point? Mary moved to Portales when she was eleven. I was fourteen, and and uh, and we actually started going out when she was a sophomore in in. In high school, and I was a senior, so and uh, I've never had another girlfriend or another date in my life other than Mary. Was a senior going out with a sophomore? Was that a little scandalous oh, at the time? Well, in those days, you know, <laughs> she was fifteen, uh, I was eighteen. It, I mean, we 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 had dates. I mean, it, it was not like going out these days, but right, <laughs> and it was scandalous because first of all. After we'd gone together for about a year, her parents 
decided that we were too serious. And we were actually forbidden to go together for a year. And they were uh-huh. probably right. I've I got to tell you the truth, too. See, you know, I'm sure you've listened to the story, so you know that Mary was a, a brilliant woman. She had a Ph.D. in chemistry and then ended up with a four-year yeah. post-fellowship in Sloan Kettering in New York. So, so she, she was obviously the apple of every teacher's eye. She was the valedictorian valedictorian she was she was everything to everybody and and i was voted most likely to end up in prison <laughs> so this is this is the truth when mary and i started going together teachers used to stop mary in the hallway and they would say mary you're breaking your mother's heart <laughs> <laughs> well i guess opposites attract huh <laughs> She went elsewhere to college then, and you stayed in New Mexico to go no, to college? No, no, no. After she graduated from high school in Portales, her parents moved to Albuquerque for one year, and she went to school one year at UNM in, in Albuquerque. But then Mary and I got married. We got married when she was she was still 19. Our, our first son was born three days before she was 20. Uh-huh. So both Mary and I graduated from college in, in Portales. So when we graduated from college, then Mary got, had a National Science Foundation fellowship to go to Georgetown University, and that's when I went. Uh, I started my theater career in series. I, I started work at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. So we were there for six years yeah. and, while Mary got her Ph.D., and I worked at Arena Stage. And then in, in 69, she, she got her Ph.D., and we went to New York, and I, I started doing Broadway and Off-Broadway and Shakespeare in the Park, and she, she started a four-year postdoctoral fellowship at Sloan Kettering. While we were there in New York in, in 71, then, then I, got, uh, I got deliverance. Did you get deliverance because someone saw you on stage? How did that part come yeah, to you? I was lucky that in the, first of all, they were looking for good unknown actors, and God knows I was unknown. <laughs> and and right. I had done a, a workshop show for Joseph Papp, and I don't know if you know who Joe Papp was. Yeah, Joe Papp sure. was the king of, he did hair, he did Shakespeare in the Park, he started Shakespeare in the Park there. And, and I had done a workshop show for Joe Papp. And, and 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 Joe Papp loved my and and when the the producers from Hollywood came out, uh, the casting director, they went to Joe Papp and they said, "Is there an actor that you would recommend that we see?" And now, I was actually the first actor they saw in New York, not because I was at the top of anyone's list, but because I was so far at the bottom of the list that they 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 had. They were going to start seeing people at like 10 o'clock to see if I was even. So I met with the casting director. He and I hit it off. I, I went away and came back. And I, during that course of that week, I met with John Borman two or three, four more times. They, they, and eventually they flew a bunch of us out to California here and tested us for those four main roles. And they tested about oh, 14 or 15 of us. And out of those 14 or 15, I was the only one they liked. And and then a couple of weeks later, they found Ned Beatty in New York. This is probably the first time in the history of, of movies. They found the two guys below the title <laughs> before they found the two guys above the title. Yeah, and did you and Ned know each other from doing stage we work? We've or? been best friends for like eight years, and they didn't know we knew each other. We were cast totally independently of each other. 
that they didn't have any idea that we and we'd done like 20 plays together so at that point i i guess john voigt unless i'm mistaken had already done midnight yeah, cowboy midnight and cowboy and yeah on the brink of stardom yeah so you were aware of him and at- bert to tell you the truth bert was kind of uh, in those days if you were a television actor as opposed to a film actor that was somehow a a, a, a lesser and so bert was sort of known as a television actor and and so in many ways deliverance was a huge huge break for bert as well he so, became number one box office in the world it all sort of goes back it goes back to three things that happened that year deliverance and people yeah. realized he was a great actor he went on the tonight show for the first time people realized he right. was funny and he did that damn centerfold that's right. So this was your first film. Did you learn things from Bert and John about how to work? Bert was was incredible. And the thing is, but you kind of realize too. In many ways, John Borman was as happy of having me and Ned in the film because he we were considered sort of co-equal stars with with those other guys because. And 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 yeah. our acting chops, and we we improvised the whole the whole movie. It, it, well, I'm saying improvised. We we went through every. I'm not implying that John Borman wasn't in strict control, but we were always sort of free to. And and we had two weeks of rehearsal of getting to know these guys, and we shot this film in sequence, which has never happened before or since. But yeah, and we did all right. the canoeing ourselves. So in many ways, it was kind of hard to even think that you were or remember that you were doing a movie because when you're, I got to tell you the truth, when you're in a canoe, there's not much acting that takes place. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and to watch you guys going through those rapids. At the end of the film, they find a, a canoe that's broken in half. That's part of the plot there. They find this canoe. They didn't have to do that. We did that for them. <laughs> well, and Borman, would you describe him as an actor's director? Like I said, he was totally in control, but you were always free to, to go where, wherever you, you felt the character needed to go. With no rancor or anything, he'd say, that works or that doesn't work, you know, and, and then do something else. And the thing about John, too, since he knew, I had never done a film. I'd never been in in front of a camera before. And I trusted John so much. Like a lot of directors don't like an actor to to come to dailies because they get self-conscious, you know. But but John had me come and sit beside him at dailies. And and I trusted him so much. He would he would go through and we would do the scenes, and he'd say, "See that shot? That's really good." But I won't. And, and there would be one. He said, "I won't use that, and I won't use that." So it got to the point where I I absolutely knew that he would take my best work and it would get on the screen. So I, I, I never had that feeling of like a lot of. I've seen two act two reactions from actors some people look at themselves and then they they poof themselves oh aren't i great or i've seen other actors like bert bert looks at himself and then cringes and he did he hated watching himself neither of those applied to me (laughs) it was almost like i was watching somebody else because the fun for me is always playing Uh the character not playing myself anyway so if john borman said that that was good 
that was good enough for me. And by the way, that scene where your arm is really wrecked, I'm wondering how you did that, because <laughs> that really looked bad. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot of people think that's the most phony shot they've ever seen in their life. Uh, uh, that's actually me. Yeah. <laughs> I I had polio when I was young, and my shoulder comes out of place. Wow! And so, actually, I can tell you a funny story about that. When we were when we we're getting ready to shoot that scene with with Drew being found drowned, and and they were the, the original concept was they were going to find Drew in the water, face up, with his eyes open. Uh, as that was sort of going to be the image that John was going for. And and while they were fitting me with these false eyeballs so that I could look like I had my <laughs> eyes open, I, I told John, I said, you know, I can do a really weird thing with my shoulders. And I, I, he wanted to see it, so I showed it. He almost fell down. He just uh-huh. thought that was the... And... and, and uh, <laughs> The Michael Hancock, who who the makeup artist, got known for years after that as being the guy that did this incredible. He didn't have to do anything. <laughs> right, right. Well, and of course, the the one of the more iconic scenes is you playing guitar with the kid. And I learn all these years later that neither of you actually played at least in the scene or on the soundtrack. I mean, how did that work? Well, yeah, actually. I play guitar now. I'm obviously not a blue, right. I'm not a bluegrass picker. And and John Borman wanted me to play it because see he wasn't trying to go for a, a big hit song. He he liked the idea that this savant kid was showing up this totally amateur guitar player. Since the kid, Billy Redden is his name, Billy couldn't, he didn't even know enough about banjo. That's not even his left arm on the film. Right. And and so we were going to have to do what's called, as you know, match playback, pre-recorded, and then we would... But John Borman wanted to be able to cut to somebody's fingers playing the right notes. So Steve Mandel, who played the the guitar part in that, Eric Weisberg did the banjo, but so Steve taught me the piece note for note. So if you go back and look at the film, anytime they cut to my fingers, they're playing the right notes. I, so so did I play it? Yes. Is that me on the soundtrack? No. Did it cost me about a million dollars? Probably yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so the film obviously does very well. Did you think that it was going to be nominated for an Oscar? And, and by the same token, how did it change your life? Well, we all, everybody, I got to tell you, every actor in the world wanted those four roles. Yeah. John Borman had to literally hide out from, because in those days, there's some big star like Marlon Brando and Gene, those people, Burt Lancaster, they wanted this movie. You you had to damn well give it. And John, John wanted, first of all, he wanted younger guys, and he wanted, and how did it change my life? Totally. <laughs> I mean, right. I, I mean, I had, Mary and I had already been married 11 years by then, had two small boys, had lived that struggling actor, graduate student existence for living hand to mouth, literally. I, I, at that point, I'd never made more than $6,000 in one year in my life. We were just happy as we could be, but, but totally without money. And then all of a sudden, I'm... 
I'm being offered I'm being offered roles that I would never even have heard of before. So interesting. It, it, my life changed really dramatically. Not too long after that, you were offered the series Apple's Way, which as I remember uh, as a kid liking a lot. And again, you got to uh, play the guitar on, on this show. Yes. Yeah. That, that was part of the deal. And uh, and occasionally I get to, I, I, I've, I've done some, you know, I got to, I did Bound for Glory with with uh, Hal Ashby, which is the Woody Guthrie film. Right. Played, picked and sang in that. And I loved Bound for Glory. It was such nice casting, you and David Carradine, and I and I believe Randy Quaid and Melinda Dillon in the cast. Exactly. And, and here's something I bet you didn't know, and, and, and you'll have to go back and chess yourself. Melinda Dillon played two roles in that. She did. And no one ever recognizes her. She played Mary Guthrie. Mary Guthrie. But she also played Memphis Sue. How did it happen that she would do that? She went to Hal and said, I want to do this. And she, and, and, and she got her a black wig and came in and convinced him. And, and, and no one ever recognizes her from the, the two roles. It's amazing. And she was about the hottest uh, actress uh, of that era, wasn't she? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've done several things with Melinda. You did another iconic film not too long after that, The Onion Fields with John Savage and, and James Woods. That was a Joseph Wamba book, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was uh, Franklin Seals. And I believe... I'm not sure, but I think that's Ted Danson's first role. So in 1981, you're the voice of reason, really, who comes in in the film Taps, alongside these these young actors, Tom Cruise, Sean Penn, Tim Hutton. Could you see that these guys had very bright futures? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, while we were shooting that film, it was when Tim Hutton won the Academy Award for Ordinary People. So, yes. so he was already on his way. But it was Tom Cruise and Sean Penn's first film. Right. Most people think Spicoli was Sean Penn's. It wasn't. I've been with a lot of guys' first film. It was Ned Beatty's first film, by the way. Deliverance, yeah. yeah. So Beverly Hills Cop would uh, follow. Can Could you tell that you were working on this, what would become this huge hit with Eddie Murphy? Yeah. It's the first time in my life where we really knew that we were doing something that, that we knew absolutely knew was going to be this huge hit and it was kind of a heady thing because because i mean let's face it you know a lot of times some people down this especially down the south thought the deliverance was sort of a porno movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> and some of the other onion field and 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 some of those you know they were good films but but they weren't blockbuster films beverly hills cop we knew was was going to be a blockbuster film. I'm assuming Eddie worked unlike probably anyone you had worked with up until that point. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, the hardest thing in doing a film with Eddie Murphy is is not messing up the take by laughing off <laughs> when he's doing his stuff. Uh -huh. I'd be there to feed him the lines. And then he would start ripping. And the, the three of us, Judge and John and I, would just be off camera just doing everything we could <laughs> i've done three films with eddie now you, you know i did I, I, cop one cop two but then i also did a little film called imagine that 
you went on to do RoboCop and you played, there, no argument here, a really rotten guy. Was this something that director Paul Verhoeven saw in you that maybe most people didn't? Well, that was, the, see, in many ways, RoboCop was as big a boon to my career as Deliverance was. Because after Deliverance came out, because I was played Drew, the, the sensitive one, the, the nice guy, I, I got stuck then for the next 10 or 15 years. And, and see, in Hollywood, especially in those days, if you played a guy with sensitivity, that got equated with weak and so I got known as being a soft actor. So if a, if, a, if a role had any guts to it, I sort of didn't get it because I was known as this, this sensitive, soft, nice guy. And Paul Verhoeven, that's the brilliance of, of Paul. He knew that there was a sort of residual goodwill that, that my character would have when he came on to the screen. And he he loved the idea that when this guy that you think is going to be good is really bad. Yeah, and if there have been many actors who've I think been in the same boat since then, but you're yeah, absolutely, I've that's seen a true. A lot of online where I've been voted the number one villain of the eighties. <laughs> that had to make you feel I good. Tell you the truth, I love playing those guys. Playing playing those yeah. guys are about a gazillion times more fun than playing the, the good guys. In Total Recall, I believe I read once that you said uh, working with Arnold, he was a little bit of a bully to people. Yeah, he was. I, I finally figured that out, too. One of the things, you got to realize Arnold came up in that world of bodybuilders where you saw the, sort of the whole macho, I'm better than you, I'm bigger than you, I'm stronger than you, the way yeah. that they get by. And so, so in a way, that's just sort of the default way that Arnold dealt with people. And I got to tell you the truth, he, he, he treated, especially some women, Sharon Stone and, and, and some other people, he, he didn't treat them because he, he is a bit of a bully. And I realized when 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 I was going to do Cohagen that because often if you find an actor who's throwing his weight around, uh, then then they try to throw their weight around in the scene too, <laughs> and and I knew that Cohagen couldn't allow anyone to throw his weight around, so so I determined that from the get go. So the first day I met Arnold, he and I sort of locked horn, and we we sort of deal, dealt with each other always on a, on a surfacely cordial way, but a mutual put down of, of of really cutting the other guy down as much as possible. And he would tease me, I would tease him, and I. Think, because Arnold and I ended up having a really good working relationship, and I think one of the reasons he appreciated that all of a sudden there wasn't just this yes man that was exceeding all of his stuff. So, so there was somebody he could deal with on a different level, and so because of that, Arnold and I got along just fine. Interesting, interesting. You could just cut right through the BS, yeah. I guess. So you did Stargate SG-1 at, at, for quite a few years, and that's a very loyal fan base, isn't it? Boy, is it ever. They were the first of the, of the, of the sci-fi that, that really, and I mean really, love my music. 
I got. I used to go to these conventions and stuff like that, and and now I'm the most hated man in their universe. So I thought they would boo me off the stage, and I went and did a show, my show for them. I couldn't get off stage. I mean, so (laughs) they love my music, and 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 I have to tell you the truth: the Stargate fans are completely different than the Star Trek fans. Because I did, yeah. you know, I did those two episodes of Star Trek, too, the, the, which are the two most uh, watched shows of, of Next Generation, where I played Captain Jellico. So anyway, I uh, the Star Trek fans, you know, are, are typically those those nerdy guys with the with the pencils in, in their pocket, the plastic, yep. and they're generally young guys. The typical Stargate fan is a, 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 a young professional woman. Because if you think about the two shows, uh, Star Trek is kind of a Western in the space, whereas Stargate is more of a romance. So they're very different fan bases. You said once that you really never wanted to be so much of a star as that character was more important exactly. to you. I, I yeah. have zero interest in playing well, see there's a there's a whole genre of of actors that talking clichés here a little bit but but like John Wayne pretty much always played a a, a stylized version of John Wayne or or right. I mean, a lot of those guys and even Burt to, to to a certain extent until he found out that he could be funny they they played sort of a version of themselves that interests me not at all i'm i'm interested in the guys that that are interested in playing the characters my favorite actors were always robert duval and and gene hackman and and actors that that put lose themselves in the role because playing persona just has no allure for me. And it served you well. And and of course, at this point in your career, do you feel that music is kind of the, the, the important thing yeah, at this point for you? It has been for a number of years. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love acting. I mean, I really do love acting, but I don't love it quite as much as the music. And I can tell you why. With acting, no matter what, whether it's movies, television, plays, you name it, there is and must be that imaginary fourth wall between you and the audience. You, you can't step through the, the lens and talk to the audience. Or, or if you're doing a play, you can't talk to the audience as, the, well, stage manager on, in our town can talk, but he has to stay within the confines of that character. Whereas the kind of show I do, it doesn't always happen. But the kind of show I do, I get to use all my chops. I, I, there, there's a possibility of a profound one-on-one sharing that can take place between me and the audience. And that is an opiate that is undeniable. You know, there are a couple of actors who remind me of you in that they're also singer, storyteller types, and that is yeah, Jeff Daniels. Great. I've had any 
number of discussions. I mean, he once said to me, he said, that, Ronnie, you and I seem to be the only two that, 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 that sort of know how to do this. <laughs> Interesting. And I was going to add to that list, uh, Jeff Bridges. It just seems, it seems like you all are very much into connecting with the audience, and yeah, I get that. that that's, yeah. that's the reason the stories are so important to me. So things being what they are, does your band come over to your house and play occasionally, or what are you doing we're, at the moment? <laughs> my piano, my keyboardist lives in Chicago. My the other guy, uh, Panda, lives in in uh, in, uh, in Georgia. Ronnie Cox's latest album, Live at the Kitchen Sink. Where can people buy well, the album? Go to my website, RonnieCox.com. And and they can hear listen to the stories there if they want to. Actually, they can listen to the there's there's MP3s of all my songs there. I you know a lot of people don't let you listen to the MP3s, but I I I don't believe in that. You can you can go and listen to them if you want, and but if you want to you can order it right right from there, and I'll I'll autograph it, send it to you myself. Fantastic. Ronnie, I can't tell you how much of an honor this was to uh, speak with you. You, I emailed you a few days ago, and you got back to me right away. I, I really do appreciate your time. This was very nice. It meant a lot to me. Well, thanks. Nice talking to you, Ronnie. Thanks so much. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I think the toughest thing at this point for Ronnie is not necessarily missing out on the next acting gig as much as getting out and connecting with audiences at one of his stellar shows. That does it for this edition of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you back here next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.